You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. So my name is Joe Bateman. I'm a rheumatologist from the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, and it's a pleasure to invite Lorraine Harper, who's a professor of nephrology from the University of Birmingham, and also an honorary uh, consultant at the uh, University Hospitals Birmingham. Uh, Lorraine has a breadth of experience in the management of angry-associated vasculitis and leads the clinical research network there. Um, and she's very kindly joined us on the podcast today to talk about some of her experiences of uh, ankyvasculitis and we're interested in uh, tips for us as rheumatologists and also some of her own experiences during the COVID pandemic and Lorraine it's been an uh, unusual time in healthcare and we'd be really interested to see what your experiences have been looking after patients with vasculitis during the pandemic. Thank you James it's lovely to be here. Well thanks for joining us. So Really, thinking about our experiences um, during the COVID pandemic is that we changed our induction therapy policy. So um, as NHS England Specialist Commissioning Guidance advises, um, rituximab should only be given to patients who are intolerant of cyclophosphamide, have had previous doses of cyclophosphamide, or who would be contraindicated to have um, cyclophosphamide either from a fertility perspective or other um, problems such as previous bladder cancer. And we we have been using induction um, cyclophosphamide based on that for many years and it's worked really well. And we've got a relatively good safety profile because we only give one course of induction cyclophosphamide and then always move on to rituximab. But cyclophosphamide policies are given, require six to 10 visits. So we switched purely to giving rituximab induction therapy. And that has worked well. It has reduced contact um, with patients in terms of direct contact from a, a footfall into the hospital perspective. It's also reduced the amount of monitoring we've had to do. So that again has reduced the contact of patients um, with hospital services. And I think has proved to be a safer policy, although we don't have any um, hard data to justify that. But it has allowed more patients to continue to self-isolate as, as they require. I think we have been slightly surprised that there have been a number of patients who we've had to actually switch but to cyclophosphamide because they haven't responded quite as quickly as we would like. But it's not out with the bounds of um, expectations given the reports of from the RAVE trial, for example, that switched from rituximab to cyclophosphamide and, and vice versa. And we have in the past um, required patients to switch from cyclophosphamide to rituximab because they haven't been um, progressing as quickly as we would like to. The other thing that we've done is we've moved to telephone consultations and that has worked well for some patients but not so for others. Um, There are a lot of patients who actually quite like the reassurance of seeing you face to face 
having the blood tests on that day and getting the results. And it has been a logistical challenge to manage um, pre-appointment blood tests. So those are probably the two big things that we changed during the COVID pandemic. And did you move completely to face-to-face -face for some of the vasculitis follow-up patients or was it a mixture? Um, so during the during the, the first wave, we moved everybody to remote clinics. Um, and we've been gradually increasing the number of face-to-face -face appointments that we've been seeing. Um, more, during the second wave, acute patients or anybody who suggested that they had a problem were seen face-to-face. -face. Um, but as we're moving forward, we're actually increasing the number of routine patients we're seeing face-to-face -face as well. And it's based purely on patient request. Um, so we, at the moment, we've now got a hybrid system where we see in a clinic of 40 patients, we'll see 15 face-to-face -face and the rest will be telephone. No, that's really helpful uh, to understand. It's interesting you commenting about rituximab. I think for our rheumatology patients, we've had some concerns about uh, COVID and rituximab retreatments. You're obviously using a lot more rituximab in the vasculitis group now. Have you had any particular concerns or problems with rituximab use in terms of adverse effects or problems with COVID that you've, that you've noticed? So we haven't had anything in terms of um, adverse effects unless what you mean an increased susceptibility to infection. Um, and certainly all our rituximab patients are treated as um, highly vulnerable. Um, and we have encouraged self-isolation where necessary. The, we, we have tried to get everybody vaccinated and actually our vaccination rates are really very high. I think we've got about 90 to 95% vaccination uptake, which is, you know, very different from other populations, but they are a very different group. Um, in those who've been vaccinated that are on rituximab, we have not ourselves looked at that population, but we know from data that um, vaccination response is very dependent on your proportion of B cells and how long you were from the last rituximab infusion. So in those patients that we've got on maintenance therapy, um, for the first vaccination, we delayed uh, administering rituximab until individuals had got vaccinated and then four weeks later to allow them to respond to that um, initial vaccination. And then we gave them the rituximab. And then subsequently, we just vaccinated as they are meant to be vaccinated. There's certainly good evidence that you get a, a decent T cell response, although how important the T cell response is versus the B cell response is difficult to understand. But certainly in patients who've received a kidney transplant, they seem to do an awful lot worse than um, other forms of immunosuppression. And uh, that may be related to the fact that they, they're on, B, on T cell suppressing therapies as opposed to B cell suppressing therapies. Um, we have had a number of patients who've had COVID who've come through it and come through it well, but we've also had, unfortunately, a few deaths along the way. 
No, no and, and I think we've all been struggling with balancing those kinds of risks. Uh, have you have you noticed a change in the presentation of patients to your clinic? I guess uh, your primary care has shifted their assessments. Have you noticed a, a change in the presentation of ankyloviscularitis to your service in the last eighteen months? Not not hugely. Um, we still have the same sorts of numbers coming through. Um, and that may be because we do, we, you know, our referral pattern from GPs is very much renal, and that tends to present more acutely. Um, we are still getting our referrals through the ENT service and through, and because we have a, a multidisciplinary clinic, which is staffed by respiratory physicians, rheumatologists, and nephrologists. We're, we still are kind of seeing the same patterns of referrals as we had previously. And it's been a pleasure to spend some time in your clinic in Birmingham. Um, and I guess one of the things rheumatologists would like to know is uh, tips that you may have for us in the assessment of patients with vasculitis. And uh, uh, I wonder what you think rheumatologists do well and what we could do better in terms of this you know, interesting patient group. So I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that um, having a multidisciplinary clinic is hugely beneficial, um, both from my perspective as a nephrologist understanding rheumatological disease um, and hopefully vice versa. I think it's always important to think about the kidneys um, when you've got a vasculitic patient in front of you and just dip stick, sticking the urine every visit is is helpful and I think that sometimes it gets forgotten about because it's not part of routine clinical practice in rheumatology um, but you know our rheumatology colleagues are, are excellent they do everything really well but I would always make a plea to remember the urine and just dip stick it and check the blood pressure. It's, it's always a question for my foundation of doctors. I would say, is it easy to get a urine dipstick result? And it both is and isn't easy, depending on, you know, patients going out the door and not necessarily returning back. So, no, it's, that's, that's, really, that's really helpful. And I guess in your, in, there's been a couple of uh, very interesting research studies that have come out in the last um, couple of years following on from that. And you're in your, um, uh, with your patients with often quite severe renal disease. And I know you've been involved in, in, in both of them. And there was the, the Pexivast study. And I guess as a rheumatologist, we're less involved with these um, patients who present with, you know, uh, acute renal injury. But I wonder if you could uh, just give your own perspectives on the results of the Pexivast trial, because some rheumatologists may not be familiar with them and what it means in real world clinical practice for the patients we share. So um, Pexivas was a trial of it's one of the largest vasculitis trial, ANCA vasculitis trials that's ever been undertaken. And there were over 700 patients recruited um, over the course and were followed up for a number of years with the primary endpoint being end stage renal failure or death. And it was a factorial design trial with two questions in mind. One was in those with a GFR of less than 50 mils a minute or severe or alveolar hemorrhage, whether plasma exchange showed benefit. And then the second question was, was a standard dose um, steroid regime 
better than a lower dose steroid regime. And <clears throat> the, um, the, the standard dose regime is, is probably reasonably, um, it's probably what most people use, although there is a lot of variability in steroid administration over the, uh, over, uh, the course of disease. Um, but it certainly showed that there was no difference in outcomes between um, death or end-stage renal failure. And there was certainly a reduction in infection rates, severe infection rates in those patients who had the lower dose steroids. So we've certainly moved to a, a lower dose steroid regime. Now that lower dose steroid regime still included some IV methylpred. And what, particularly in renal patients, you, there are disadvantages to using IV methylpred. There is certainly in, in renal patients with um, significant renal dysfunction, a, an increased risk of infection, diabetes, and it doesn't really appear to be an, an improved outcome. So I think that there's still room to reduce our steroid use. In terms of plasma exchange, again, there was no difference at one year in terms of the number of patients who had died or who had end-stage renal failure um, in, uh, between those who had received and who had not received plasma exchange. There was a slight early difference between the two curves, but at one year they'd come back together. And we've interpreted that as that Plasma exchange should not be routinely used in patients with a GFR of less than 50. There may still be um, some space for it in those who are not perhaps responding quite as you would like. And I think the meta-analysis of those patients who've got the, very, the more severe end of the spectrum, those that have got GFRs of less than 15 or who present dialysis dependent, um, will be really important because certainly MEPEX, as you will remember, has suggested that those who had um, who were dialysis dependent or had a creatinine of greater than 500 benefited in the short term from plasma exchange, but not in the longer term at five year follow up. So I think the, the, the jury is still out at the very severe end of the spectrum, but it should not be plasma exchange should not be routinely used. And, and I think you you, the, you comment on the numbers. I mean, there were phenomenal numbers for a trial in vasculitis of you know, 350 plus in each arm. Um, and, and actually, I think the, the renal function, the creatinine of both groups is actually they had fairly significant renal disease in that in in that study, which is really interesting. I mean, sometimes we're asked to see patients with pulmonary hemorrhage, and I think do you feel that it's changed the perspective in pulmonary hemorrhage as well? Because I think. The, the numbers of patients in, in uh, the Paxivas study actually eclipses that of past studies in pulmonary hemorrhage. Is, is that fair to say? Do you still think there's a strong role in pulmonary hemorrhage? So I, I am not convinced that there's a strong role for plasma exchange in pulmonary hemorrhage. Um, I think that some of the data that's the, the data that's been produced to support the use of plasma exchange is is not controlled. Um, and it was retrospective historical comparisons. Um, I think that the outcome of people with pulmonary hemorrhage is, is often very dependent on actually on your renal disease. 
So if you if you've got bad pulmonary hemorrhage and you don't have bad renal disease, actually you do relatively well. Whereas if you've got bad renal disease plus pulmonary hemorrhage, you do really quite badly. Um, so I think the jury is very much out on um, the very severe end of the pulmonary hemorrhage because there were not that many patients who were ventilated in that trial um, who had severe pulmonary hemorrhage. But certainly I don't think there's any, any evidence to support use of plasma exchange in um, non-ITU dependent um, alveolar hemorrhage. That's that's really helpful for I guess as rheumatologists that are often uh, involved in the care of patients like this, but perhaps obviously not making a lot of decisions around those areas. Uh, and with the methylprednisolone, have you changed your practice away if away from using IV methylprednisolone now completely, um, just starting with oral steroids? That, that was my understanding. Yeah. So so we did some work. Um, a few years ago where we compared uh, across three different sites, um, patients who had, um, were essentially patients who, who would have satisfied the MEPEX um, criteria. Because MEPEX itself compared IV methylpred with plasma exchange, those patients who were plasma exchange did not get methylpred. So we looked at that proportion of patients and we looked at those because we all our patients um, in in that study were plasma exchanged because they had severe disease. It was before the um, publication of Pexivast. So we compared those who had plasma exchange alone versus plasma exchange plus IV methylpred. And there were about, um, across the three sites, there were about 100 patients. Now there were differences it was a, you know, it, it was not randomised with all the caveats of a non-randomised study. But what we showed was that there was no benefit to the IV methylpred. And in a proportion of patients, there was real disadvantage. So there was an increased rate of diabetes. There was an increased rate of severe infections. And there was an increased rate of overall infections. So we 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 tend to use the Cyclops um regime for steroids, which is starting with oral prednisolone. And actually, it's not that dissimilar from the Pexivas, um, low-dose Pexivas regime, apart from the fact that it doesn't have this, the IV methylpred up front. And I think it's helpful to have all these things stored on your mobile phone when, when it comes down, when you're less familiar with them. I, I know, obviously, as a, as a rheumatologist, seeing a, a range of different patients. So that's that's really interesting. Um, and, uh, and as part of the podcast series, there is a link to the BSR um, advice on vasculitis. I know you've been involved in authoring that came out last year. And, but perhaps we can finish just touching on another um, uh you know, groundbreaking study in ankyovasculitis, the uh, Advocate trial um, and the use of avacapan. Now, this is uh, a therapy that the majority of rheumatologists, I guess, will be unfamiliar with. Um, it's been published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. It may be a, a, a game changer, I guess, in vasculitis. I wonder if you can give your views and explain to rheumatologists uh, the, you know, the, the use of avacapan in the trial and what your perspective on it is? So the advocate trial was a double-blind placebo-controlled 
uh, trial of avacapan versus corticosteroids with standard induction therapy. So that could either be rituximab or cyclophosphamide. Treatment was continued um, for 12 months in the avacapan limb. Uh, steroids were discontinued, were tapered and discontinued by six months. And the primary endpoint was sustained remission at 12 months. There was a non-inferiority primary endpoint at six months, which compared sustained remission um, between the two limbs. And if the non-inferiority limb was achieved or end, you know, goal was achieved, they then assessed superiority at 12 months. And it must be noted that between six and 12 months, you continued avacapan, but you did not continue steroids. Avacapan is a small molecule um, inhibitor of the C5A receptor. So essentially it blocks the inflammatory aspects of C5A. And in animal models, um, the alternative pathway of the complement system has been shown to be important in the pathogenesis of disease. So that was the kind of rationale for, for the trial. And um, the trial showed that at six months, there was no difference in remission rates between the two limbs. But at 12 months, there was a significant um, benefit to the avacapan. And I think what's exciting about um, the study is that there was considerably less steroid toxicity in the avacapan limb, as you would expect. There was also significant improvement in patients' quality of life. Now, what I think that means is that um, I don't think that avacapan is a particularly fantastic drug for making you feel better, apart from what it does to suppress disease. But what it doesn't have is all the nasty side effects that you get with steroids like mood upset, sleep disturbance, just that horribleness that all our patients complain of. And I think that's a really important point. And there are also some interesting um, interesting effects on the kidney. So there appeared to be a slight improvement in the difference in levels of renal improvement. There was also a faster reduction in proteinuria. So um, I think it's a really interesting drug. I think it potentially could be a game changer um, because of the, the side effects that you don't get. You don't get the diabetes, you don't get the hypertension, you don't get the osteoporosis and all the other things that are associated with steroids. And certainly as an individual patient, they appear to feel better. And that is really important. Um, we, we have used it on compassionate basis on a patient who uh, had failed to go and we, we were unable to reduce their steroids um, and managed to get disease into remission. Um, and so, you know, perhaps that may be something that we need to think about is, is rather than using high dose steroids, we now use avacapan. Um, but it's still, you know, it's, it's still very early days. It's, it's one study. It's going through the FDA and the NICE approval processes at the moment. Um, hopefully we'll get to use it. But I think its longer term role in managing maintenance of remission still needs to be determined. And perhaps coming across all the 
trials and research that you've just mentioned, this this role of the uh, the problematic effects of steroids and the importance of us being prudent and careful in steroid prescription in this, in this patient group is, I guess, can't be underestimated. I think it's as a learning point for rheumatologists the you know the importance of tapering steroids as quickly as we can and using these kinds of trial re- regimes uh, may well be may well be um, uh, very important for our, for, our, for our patient group and uh, do you have an do you have a, an idea of when you think it may may come on stream in in the UK are we thinking sort of several years or I don't know is the honest answer, James. The NICE assessment of um, Avacapan is scheduled for um, May next year. So I think we will have a much clearer idea of what NICE thinks at that point. And I guess it very much depends on the pricing and the modelling that they decide to use as to where it is based on that cost-benefit ratio. And it was interesting. It almost seemed that it's being used along, and so you can still use short course of steroids alongside of Acapan, I think, for for flares. Is that and that was my sort of reading of the of the approaches. It'd be, it'd be an interesting uh, learning point for us as rheumatologists and nephrologists as we get get to get to grips with a new medication. Well, I mean, the the trial is the first. The Acapan trial, or the Advocate trial, sorry, is the first large trial to ever um, not use steroids. So it's, you know, it is the first trial we've ever done that has shown that you perhaps don't need quite as much steroid as we're all throwing around. And certainly there's an alternative to steroids that um, may be beneficial. Well, well, then that's a really helpful, informative way to, to, to close the podcast. And Lorraine, I'd just like to say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join us. And I know uh, rheumatology would be very interested to hear your thoughts. So uh, thank you for the time you spent uh, uh, speaking to us today. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.